Well, open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter number 13. We're going to be finishing this chapter tonight, and uh, I know I keep saying that we're going to veer away from Proverbs, and uh, but uh, and uh, that is kind of the plan for at least for a few months, but uh, but I, I like chapter 14 so well that we're going to go through it, so... We'll probably get through it and somebody say, yeah, but I want chapter 15. So, but I, I don't know. It's hardly any, any quitting place. But, um, you know, it seems like every time you go through one of the chapters, there's some certain verse that jumps out at you or something that just really gets a hold of you. And uh, I think of different verses all the time. And it's so strange that uh, sometimes I can remember back, you know, 40, 45 years ago when that particular verse first made an impression on my heart and uh, and you're just endeared to that verse for the rest of your life. Now, I don't know if our study in, in, in Proverbs 13, if there's been any particular verse that struck you to that great extent, but uh, let's just take a few minutes. Has there been a verse... So far, let's don't, we're not going all the way back, but just in chapter number 13, has there been any particular verse that's jumped out at you or uh, Rick? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Yep, amen, amen, that's good, that's... Yep, that's one of those verses that everybody ought to have committed to memory for sure. Anybody else that uh, maybe maybe it was just had to do with the situation that you were going through at the time or uh, reminded you of something or... Well, all right. I wanted to give you that opportunity anyway and... uh, you know, I, I I think it's good, you know, anytime we open the Bible to maybe even before we do ask the Lord, just pray and ask the Lord to really speak to us in some specific way through a particular verse or whatever and uh, uh, be looking for something every week. Uh, I remember back when I first got saved and immediately started one of these Bible reading programs where you go through the Bible in a year. And and I did that for years, in fact, every year, read through the Bible, read through the Bible. And, you know, that's fine. There's not a thing in the world wrong with that. If if nothing else, it's a good discipline to get in the habit of doing that. But uh, a lot of times we just read through the Bible and we don't really give any thought to what we're reading. We don't really stop and study what, what we've just read. And, and uh, so, well, tonight, verse 19 is where we pick up. And uh, we don't have far to go, and so we'll quit when we finish, whatever time that is. And uh, who knows, you might get out early. I don't know. Verse 19, the desire accomplished is sweet to the soul, but it is abomination to fools to depart from evil. The first part of this verse is simply reminding us that there is joy in a job well done. Notice the desire, the thing that, 
you're longing for, what you hope for, the desire accomplished, mission complete. It happened, you know. It's over. The desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. You know, there's a lot of people in the world that are miserable today because, you know, they, they're they just drifting through life. They're not really looking to accomplish anything, and uh, they get up in the morning. They don't have any purpose. They don't have any plan. It's, they're just existing instead of really living. And uh, as Christians, we ought to do better than that. And he's telling us that when our plans are complete, uh, whenever our, our dreams have been realized and our purpose has been fulfilled, that is sweet to the soul. And most of the time, our, uh, our misery is self-inflicted. Most of the time, it's not because, you know, of, uh, of our upbringing. It's not because of our surroundings. It's because of what's going on in our heart. And, uh, and each one of us ought to be thinking about working out those desires, those godly desires that are within because it's sweet to the soul. I've often said I don't really understand how any Christian could ever be bored. And, uh, you know, we all go through those days of depression and we go through maybe sometimes prolonged periods where, you know, we just can't get our act together. And we feel like, you know, the psalmist when he said, why art thou cast down, O my soul? We can't put our finger on it. We don't really know what in the world is wrong with me, you know. I, I just got the spiritual blahs, and we, we, we don't know what it is. So we all go through stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these people that are all the time, and I've had them come right out and tell me, I'm just bored with life, just bored. I just, I, you know, I, I can't understand that coming from a Christian that we would be bored with life. There is so much to be excited about that uh, we shouldn't ever be bored. So the desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. It makes life a whole lot better. But the other side of the coin, he says, notice it's ab- it is abomination to fools to depart from evil. So here, he's simply telling us here that the fools cling to the very things that destroy them. In other words, they love sin. They hate the thought of giving it up. And, you know, they would rather miss their purpose in life than to give up their sinful pleasure. To them, here to depart from evil is like abomination. It's something terrible. It's something that is awful. And, uh, you know, that's just a reminder of the fact that sin is so very powerful. I mean, it can get such a, a hold on a person that even when they realize what they are doing is tearing apart their family, it's ruining their health, it's robbing them of their joy, it's taking away everything that is dear to them, and they just can't let go. And I always think of what uh, Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter number 5. And boy, uh, I mean, this perfectly depicts the person that gets involved in sin. Because normally, you know, we think, okay, you know, I can play with this sin or that sin for a while and I can derive some pleasure from it. But eventually, 
we find ourselves enslaved by it. Verse number 18, he says, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity. That's like a little spider web. It's, it's nothing. I mean, you can just snap it at any time. And he says, Woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Notice, and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. That big old cart rope is something, you know, that the oxen is pulling the cart with or the plow with or whatever. It's something that no human being could possibly break. And he's saying here, you know, in the beginning we start out with sin and we're, you know, we're attached to it, you know, just something so easy that we can break away from. But after a while, it's like a cart rope. I mean, we are enslaved by it. Well, that's a picture of this. These people are so in love with their sin that the very thought of doing without it becomes an abomination. You know, that reminds me of what the Bible says, that men love darkness rather than light. In other words, they love their sin to the extent that that it becomes just an awful thought to think about giving up their sin, the very sin that is making them miserable. And there's just so much that could be said about this. In fact, I was just a while ago thinking to myself about so many verses related to the natural man's love for sin and, and, and I thought about just compiling some of them and reading them, but, you know, I don't think I need to do that to make the point. And I think the point is clear, and we've got people right now out here engaged in all kinds of perversion and, 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 and obvious sin, and uh, they think it's the worst thing in the world if they have to give that sin up. Well, uh, that, that's why people are are miserable and that that's why so many people end up hurting others uh, you know uh, one of the things and I'm going to make this statement because this next verse I think kind of leads into it one of the things that makes our attachment to sin so difficult to break away from sin is the fact that everybody is doing it Everybody's doing it. You, you know, there, there, there's strength in numbers, so to speak. And it, it's just like whether it's in a church or a family or whatever the particular setting is, you know, if, if, if you're the only one involved in that, why naturally you want to try to conceal it. You want to hide it. You, you know, everybody else you know, knows it's wrong. They don't do that. But this is the way compromise works, you see. We compromise a little here and a little there, and it's just kind of inch by inch by inch. Uh, man, I could make so many applications here because, I, I, I mean, we've, we've all see it. We see it all of the time. It's ongoing. As we look around and we think about, let's think about ourselves as a church, and we think back five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, we think about, our stance then in regards to so many different things and what have you, and we see just little by little by little by little, and after a while, if everybody's doing it, then we're comfortable doing it. But but listen, that that never makes it right. I, I mean, if it's wrong, it's wrong, period. And uh, this is one of the problems with our kids in school, that peer pressure that is on them because everybody's doing it. That's why it, it, it is so dangerous. Now, 
notice verse number 20. He that walketh with wise men. Now, remember what Paul said about evil communications corrupting good manners. In other words, if we're among evil companions, it's going to have a, an effect of corrupting us. Well, he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Well, wise people want to be in the company of wise people. Why? Well, they realize it will have a positive effect on them. And it's so good being around, you know, good, decent, godly, spiritual-minded people. You just love to be around people like that. Why? Because as the Bible says, iron sharpeneth iron. And just rubbing shoulders with one another, so to speak, being in the company of one another, uh, it, it helps all of us. And that's why church is so important. Church is not all about just, you know, being there in attendance. It's about the effect that we have on one another. And, uh, you, you know, if we didn't do anything but walk in the door and sit down and just, uh, and, and just sit and talk, for 30 minutes, it'd be worth the trip over here because it helps us to interact with one another, and we all need that. Uh, well, notice, but, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Uh, you know, to follow a fool becomes a detriment. And we need to remember the friendships that we make will make us or break us. It's, it's that simple because we tend to become like our companions. So so many times, you know, kids uh, go go off to school and you know they develop a friendship with someone, and you know, mom and dad can see, hey, this kid's bad news. You know, I, I was that kid that was bad news, but, but you know, that every parent worries about. Uh, but parents can see that, but the kid doesn't. I mean, you know, the kid thinks, oh, this this guy's cool. I mean, he, you know, he's popular at school and this and that. And before you know it, that one kid is dragging the other down down to his level. And that's why it's so very important that you know that we teach our children the importance of forming good friendships with people. We ought to encourage that. Uh, and one of the ways we do that is, uh, you know, ha- letting the kids come over. I, you know, I, Tim, Tim can tell you that we always had somewhat of an open door policy that they were welcome to bring their their friends home, and they'd mind any given day, uh, you know, if school wasn't going on or something, we, we'd have a yard full of kids out there playing or in the house and. Uh, and it, it makes a difference uh, whenever they fellowship with the right kind of people. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise. Verse 21, evil pursueth sinners, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. Every time I think of that word pursueth, I mean automatically my mind goes back to my hunting days and I think about hounds pursuing their prey. And, uh, you know, I can remember so many times, you know, rabbit hunting with with beagle hounds and, and the many times that I've seen uh, hounds chasing deer. It was against the law to hunt deer with dogs but a lot of guys did it nevertheless and uh, 
and uh, you think about those dogs that get on a trail, and I mean, boy, it doesn't make any difference what's going on around them. They are so focused on what they're chasing that they they stay with it. And uh, the same thing's true whenever it comes to to sin. People will be attracted to some sin, and they will follow that and and stay on the trail, as it were, and refuse to turn aside. And uh, naturally, they think. In the beginning, they think they're either going to profit from it or derive pleasure from it. Somebody, somebody was talking Sunday. I think Brother Hamlin maybe mentioned the fact that there is pleasure in sin, and there is. That's what the Bible says. But it is a carnal, fleshly, worldly uh, kind of pleasure. It's not the kind of pleasure that you derive from doing what is right. It's the kind of pleasure that momentarily gratifies the flesh but notice ultimately ultimately it results in our destruction and uh, that's that's why it's dangerous because no good ever comes from sin as i've said so many times no one ever sins successfully and uh, that's true of every single one of us a lot of people think they have they think man you know, I, I, I did this or that, and I know it's wrong. I know what the church teaches about it. I know what Brother Stone said about it. I've read the Bible, I know, but I did it, and nobody knows about it, and I enjoyed it, and I didn't get caught, and so it's going to be all right. But it's not going to be all right. Sin always has a negative effect upon us in some way or another. And uh, note, notice then what he says, evil pursueth sinners, but to the righteous good shall be repaid. And so this clause is simply assuring us that good will not go unrewarded. You know, sometimes it appears that it will. Sometimes, you know, you do a good deed, you help somebody out, uh, and and maybe you do so even at great sacrifice to yourself. And by that I mean you give up something that you need and uh, maybe something you don't just need but something that you actually desire. You deprive yourself of the pleasure of having what you've got. You inconvenience yourself in order to help meet the need of somebody else. And so you've made this sacrifice and, and it seems like it's all in vain. It doesn't do any good. It, uh, you know, the person doesn't seem to be appreciative of what you've done. In fact, a lot of times they want to take advantage of it instead of being appreciative of it. You know, they want to exploit your kindness, and, and here, here they come again, you know. I mean, you just helped them, and now they're wanting help again, and uh, doesn't seem to be anything in it for you. But that's when God enters into the picture, and that's what he's saying here. The, to the righteous, good shall be repaid. And it goes back to what he says over here in Galatians about reaping what we sow. And, and that's true most of the time whenever we think about the law of sowing and reaping. We always do it in the context of what's bad. You know, we warn our kids, you know, you're going to reap what you sow. In other words, you do bad, you're going to reap something bad. But it's also true in the sense of good. When we sow seeds of goodness, whenever we are kind one to another, we're going to be repaid. And, and I, I think when I say that, I don't think the the, uh, 
the payday is just someday, I, I think we benefit even here and now on this earth as a result of that. And so it's one of those things. That, this is where living by faith comes in. We've got to trust God. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to repay you. I'm going to reward you for what you've done. And that, that's why, like Paul said, your labor in the Lord is what? It's not in vain. So, you know, don't give up on doing good just because somebody takes advantage of you, just because, you know, it seems like that you're not getting anything out of it. Now, verse 22, a good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. And the whole point of this is that a good person is concerned about the needs of others, and in this case, especially his grandchildren. You're concerned about your kids, concerned about your grandchildren, and and you're concerned about their needs, but you're also concerned about their desires. In other words, not just what they need or what what they want, but, you know, what, what they really have a desire for. And that's why nearly every parent has been guilty. You know, you take the kids to buy school clothes, and instead of giving, getting a cheap pair of Spalding, you get, you know, Nike or something like that because that's what they want. Now, they get by just as good with some, something a whole lot cheaper, but we enjoy, we enjoy pleasing our children, you see. And so uh, that, that's, I, I think that's the way it ought to be. We ought to to an extent without going to an extreme. But we need to be reminded because we look at this and we think, oh, my I haven't saved anything. I don't have a, you know, I don't have a big pile of money. They're not going to get anything whenever I die. We need to be reminded that there are things much more important than money. A whole lot. When you think about the inheritance that you leave your children, it's not just about the money that's in the bank that's going to be passed down to them. You know, that is well and good, but there are things. Uh, like somebody has said, you know, what we leave in our children is much more important than what we leave to our children. And that's right. It, we need to instill within them, uh, you know, the, the virtues that make up the uh, Christian graces. And, and if we do that, that is an inheritance that's worth far more than what money could ever buy. And the strange thing about it is whenever you do that, you know, the, the, you, let me back up and put it this way. You know, you can leave, you can leave a child uh, $10,000 or a million dollars, any amount you can think of. And uh, if, if they are undisciplined and unkind, you know, and have all of these negatives in their life that you can think of, they're going to end up spending it and be, end up being without anything. In other words, they haven't gained anything other than a, you know, a time there that they used it and they enjoyed it, but now it's gone. But whenever you instill within those children those, those Christian values, uh, it, it, it gives them something to build up on, and, and they'll make it. They'll make it because you've taught them the importance of hard work. You've taught them the importance of honesty and, and all of these other things. And as a result of that, they're going to make it. Uh, on the other hand, the sinful person, of course, has, uh, 
no concern uh, for other people and uh, their philosophies, eat, drink, and be merry. But notice he says the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. I, I think that's interesting because here again we have a comparison between the good man and the sinner. The good man's concerned about others. Naturally, the sinner isn't. But notice, the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. It's not like he's laying it up to leave to those that are just, but it's God's way of saying, as he said, that that his people shall inherit the earth. Think about that. All of the wealth of the world, everything, you know, that... That, that has value, someday all of that's, you know, going to be given to the children of God. And that ought to excite us to think about what a glorious inheritance that we have as a result of being uh, a joint heir of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is, this is God's promise. And so we need to remember there is a payday someday. And I, I love what, I can't remember who it was that said, Nothing given out of Christian charity is ever lost, and nothing hoarded out of selfishness is ever gained. And that's a good way. It's kind of like Jim Elliott said, uh, you know, uh, what we, uh, well, my mind went blank all of a sudden. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And and that's true. Now, verse 23, much food is in the tillage of the poor, but there is that is destroyed for want of judgment. I, I've got to tell you, I, I, I read through this verse several times and I thought, what? <laughs> much tillage is laid up, much food is laid up in the tillage of the poor. But there is that is destroyed for want or that is a lack of judgment. And so, you know, I, I kept reading it over and, uh, you know, some time ago got, you know, my Bible dictionary out. Tillage, that means the fallow ground. That's talking about ground that's being worked for the first time. And here's what you have to keep in mind. Back then, poor people didn't own much property, if any property. And so they had to make do with whatever they had, you know, whether it was an acre or half an acre or whatever. I mean, they've got to make do with whatever they had. And the idea here is that with hard and wise, smart work, you know, that they can derive much food from the ground that they have. Much tillage is, much food is in the tillage of the poor. And he's talking about people that apply themselves and people that work smart. I can remember Dad so many times, and Dad, of course, uh, never was able to buy a farm or anything like that. But he was always saying, "Boy, if I just had, if I had, I think it was 40 acres, uh, not over that." He said, "You know, I, I, I could, I could raise everything we need." Right there, we, we, we could live on that, and uh, all we'd ever need to do is go down to the mill, you know, and and uh, get the flour ground, and you could buy some sugar maybe and things like that. But other than that, we could survive just on that little bit of property. And uh, 
Uh, I think that was always a dream that he had that never come true. But the point is here, even with just a small amount of property that a poor person would have, he says there's much food in the tillage, but naturally it depends on what he does with it. Now, look at the last part of it. There is that is destroyed for want of judgment. Well, you, you know, in other words, here's somebody that's got a hundred acres or a thousand acres or whatever it is. If they don't have sound judgment, you know, it's not going to make any difference because they're not going to have a good crop whenever the harvest comes, and so they're not going to gain anything from it. And when I read that, I you know, I think about Egypt, and we think about what would have happened to Egypt had it not been for Joseph. Think about, you know, how uh, how large that land area was and everything, and yet the situation uh, would have been dire. I mean, the people would have literally starved to death had it not been uh, for, uh, for, for Joseph. And so we need to see that... Uh, that even great potential is worthless if we lack the judgment to make wise use of what we have. And it's just heartbreaking to see some kid that has a world of potential. I'll never forget some years ago I told one of our church members, and it wasn't a child, by the way, and I said, you know, in regards, and I won't get specific, in regards to this or that, you've got as much natural talent in that area of, of anybody that I've ever seen. Just natural talent. But I, I said, you're not making any good use of it. You're just wasting it. And so many people are like that. They've got all of that potential, just like having that big farm out there. But you've got to make wise use of it in order to profit from it. And the same thing's true in our life. Verse 24, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him be times. That means early. Chasteneth him be times. Well, I don't need to tell you this is not a popular verse today, is it? But it's just as true now as it was back then. And the whole point is that faithful, loving parents will discipline unruly children. Uh, old Bill Rice, who was the lesser-known brother of John R. Rice, he used to say he had a rule about spanking children. He said, you can do it safely one time a week, and if you don't know what it's for, they will. And so there's a lot, a lot to be said about that because, you know, I've been a lot of people say, well, you know, my kid never did need a spanking or I haven't met any of them. But, uh, but I've had people literally say, I never did have to spank my kid. What they usually mean is, I, you know, I just never spanked my kids. And then you've got those others that say, well, there are better ways to discipline your kid. That's the Dr. Phil group and, you know, and, and, and some others that, uh, oh, much better ways to discipline your children. But I, I, I think the Bible meant exactly what it said, you know, that if, if we love our children, if we really care about them, uh, we're not going to spare the rod. We're going to spank them. I think it's important that we do it in the right way and for the right reason. And I could talk a long time about this matter of child discipline. 
You know, it ought not to be out of anger because a lot of times kids get spanked simply because they upset the apple cart for mom and dad, you know. They interfered or uh, was making so much noise that they're making people miserable and you get mad and you spank them and that's not what it's all about. It has to do with chastening them. That is correcting them. And we need to think of it as correction, not punishment. You know, you did something wrong, I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to punish you because you did something wrong. That, that's not the goal. The goal is for us to correct them. And the means that we do that is described here as the rod. And uh, so now, and I think it's something to be said about that. You'll notice there is an instrument to be used. Uh, for some, it might be a peach tree limb, you know, what, whatever. It might be a belt. But, but I, I think it's interesting that that it's not with the hand. And uh, you know, maybe, maybe I could be wrong about this, but I don't think I am. Uh, but over the years, I've just felt like that we ought to use something other than our hand if we're going to spank our child. Uh, some of them, you know, got, carry a wooden spoon around, and that works pretty good, you know. But, uh, but anyway, they need to know that we mean business and and. and I feel sorry for these parents that think they're smarter than God and that they've got a better idea about how we ought to do it. Verse 25, and we're through. The righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul, but the belly of the wicked shall want. Uh, Not only does this imply that God will supply the needs of the righteous, we've got plenty of verses to... uh, to bear that out, but I think it indicates that the righteous are satisfied uh, because they're content with whatever God provides. The righteous, notice, they eateth to the satisfying uh, of his soul. Eateth to the satisfying of his soul. Uh, Well, you know, maybe it's harder to satisfy some people than others, but I think it's implied here, if not stated, that we... Uh, that we can rest with assurance that God's going to provide our needs. Notice he's speaking about the righteous, going back to what he said there, you know, in Matthew 6:33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things shall be added to you. And, uh, you know, I just believe that the Bible teaches that whatever we need not everything we want, but everything we need will be supplied if we put God first in our life. And, and that, that a godly person is going to be content with whatever God chooses to give them. And uh, they'll be satisfied as the Bible commands. The wicked, however, well, you and I both know they're never satisfied Regardless of how much they have, it doesn't make any difference, uh, you know. And in some cases, it's because, uh, you know, their wickedness caused God to withhold blessings from them. But in other cases, it's because they're discontent regardless of how much God blesses them. And so this is not all about our actions. It also involves our attitude. And whenever we get to that place that we truly believe that what I've got is all I need if I'm living my life in the will of God, you know, then that's being content. Whatever I've got, 
That's all I need. And let me tell you, a lot of times what we've got isn't everything we want, but it's everything we need. And God's not in the business of giving us everything we need. He's smarter than that. You know, you give a somebody said, you know, you give a child and a pig everything they want, and you'll have a fine pig and a spoiled child, and the, and that's about right. You know, we don't do them any favor by giving them everything they want. And so God provides our need, and consequently, we're satisfied with that. Well, Lord willing, we'll we'll pick up and going through chapter 14. Then I really do think maybe we'll take a break after that. But anyone have a comment? All mine's clear. Okay. All right. Well, let's stand together and. Tim, how about you lead us in prayer tonight?